I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Happy New Year and welcome to the last episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson here in Los Angeles, still in Los Angeles. Uh, These last two years didn't make me move to a stick shelter in the middle of the woods. Before we get started, I just want to thank all of you who have been listening from the beginning. I am so grateful for you and your support. If you are just coming to Uncivilized now, you have 35 episodes waiting for you that can hopefully help you on your journey to reimagine a different way of life outside of 21st century civilization and even outside civilization while you're still in civilization. So thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this show and our guests have inspired you, I ask you now to please leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uncivilized may be ending, but those ratings and reviews will not only help me in my next project, but help other people discover the work of the amazing guests we've had on this show. I want to thank all of those guests now as well for their time and generosity. And before we jump into this last episode, I also want to thank my devoted editor, Matthew Libman, who also happens to be my husband and the father of my children, as well as a kick-ass recording engineer, and a very patient man. Okay, I am so overjoyed with this last episode because it's brought everything full circle for me. My guest is Daniel Vitalis. For those of you who don't know him, he is a registered Maine guide and founder of the nutrition company Sir Thrival, who was the host of the immensely popular and eye-opening Rewild Yourself podcast. And Daniel inspired my own dive into the rewilding movement because when Unlatch came out three years ago, I was a guest on Rewild Yourself. And it was this real aha moment for me because until our introduction, I hadn't realized that all of these disparate areas I had been fascinated by since I was a kid, exploring the wilderness, conservation, anthropology, and ancestral peoples, and you know, just this general feeling of wanting to have lived at a different time in, her, in human history. Uh, I didn't realize it not only had a name, Rewilding, but was actually a movement as well. So Daniel is here today to talk about his new project, Wild Fed, a culinary adventure show and podcast that hopes to connect people. I won't say hope, I will say that will connect people with their local landscapes, not to mention 3 million years of human history by sustainably harvesting, cooking, and eating wild food. If you're interested in learning how to hunt and harvest wild food for the first time, Daniel really breaks it down for you here, and he tells you how specifically it's possible no matter where you live, even in a place like Los Angeles. So go ahead, check out those episodes at wild-fed.com. You can also learn more about his work at danielvitalis.com, as well as on Instagram. His handle there is at danielvitalis. So I just wanted to correct something you're going to hear in the episode. Daniel and I were talking about religious holiday traditions. This was right before the new year. And I mentioned that the Jewish calendar is a solar calendar. Uh, No, I mentioned that the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. Excuse me. And I looked it up after just to double check that and realized that I had been wrong all these years. Evidently, 10 years of Hebrew school didn't teach me that 
the Hebrew calendar is in fact a lunisolar calendar in which the months are based on the moon, but the years are based on solar years. Uh, it's That's really interesting if you're interested in reading more about it. Okay, uh, nothing like ending an entire podcast with a story correction. Um, I want to thank all of you again for your support. If you want to follow my writing, my next book, there was a journey this year when I thought I was going to medical school, but I've decided to move forward with some writing projects I'm really excited about. Please go ahead and subscribe to my newsletter on jennifergrayson.com. I am not a fan of Barney people with email, so I promise news will only be sent when it's really important. Enjoy this episode with Daniel Vitalis, and I wish you all a wonderful, wonderful year ahead. How are you? Hi, it's Jen Grayson. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you. You too. Excuse my still scratchy voice. I had a horrible case of laryngitis. So thank you for rescheduling. <laughs> no problem. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah. So How have you been? I, I've been I've been great. It's been, it's actually. been a few years, huh, since we've spoken. Uh, it has been a few years, and it's actually yeah. very fitting that this is this is the last episode of Uncivilized. Really? Oh it, my God! Tell it, me about that. It is so, uh, and you were the inspiration wow, for the that's first. That's kind of like. Full so circle. full circle in three years. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, what's the prompted you to end it? I knew for a while it was going to be ending. Um, yeah. I, you know, I probably should have written a book when I first came up with the idea, but the truth was, I was. <laughs> it wasn't my idea, you know. So I, first of all, there was like the struggle of how to, you know, see the whole world of rewilding through my lens as someone who lives yeah. in a city and to do it in a really original way. Mm -hmm. Um that hadn't been done already and all the work that you had done that was so amazing and everyone who came before you. So I just, I never came out. It was kind of like a work in progress. I just was burnt out from writing a book. I wanted to explore doing a podcast, which I had never done before and maybe come up for an idea, come up with an idea for the book through that. Yeah. And I had so many fascinating conversations, but I just never, I never came up with like my own unique spin on it. So it just <laughs> yeah. sort of, <laughs> it right, just sort right. of came to its natural end. Yeah, wow. Wow, that's kind of cool to get to to do the close out with you. Yes, yeah, so thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you today and yeah. um congrats on your marriage. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're quite happy. We're just out um we've got this our fourth year harvesting our solstice tree, so it's like the last plant we forage for the year, you know. So we've kind of made it our little tradition. So oh, we just so got tell back me about that. instead of Christmas tree you call it a solstice tree. Uh, well, yeah, I celebrate the solstice, which is on the 21st. So that's just the, the day of, you know, least light. So we're tilted away from the sun the most that day. So that's kind of, I mean, Christmas is a solstice tradition. It's just woven, you know, it's like the Christianity woven through the solar calendar thing. But um, so I just like to celebrate the solstice. I have a party that day every year. And because uh, to me, after that, every day is longer. So that's like the true that solar new year is basically so we do christmas and new year i mean it is it's the same thing really you know yeah very close i'm jewish so i don't have a christmas <clears throat> oh, okay. tradition or or a solstice right. tradition sure but that sure, sounds but I, lovely is there is there anything in the because uh, judaism's got so much lunar and solar stuff going on right there is well the calendar itself is a lunar calendar right which is why hanukkah is different every year Ah, uh, okay. So it's always on, you know, sometimes it's around Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. And sometimes, I think this year it's right before Christmas. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's funny, when you pick away at Christianity, it's like pretty obviously a solar religion. You got this whole idea of the sun that's risen again, <laughs> you know, and, the, and then when the sun dies, he's three days underground, which is really what happens at the solstice, because uh, you get the shortest day of the year, and then the sun appears to be, um, to shine only the same amount 
for three days, those three days in the underworld, and then the days start growing longer. So it's like it's really this big solar myth that's woven around. I don't know. It's got all this archetype associated to it, and we made it about this guy. But oh anyway. wow, that's fascinating. Well, in that case, let's do our episode about that instead of <laughs> wild fed. <laughs> Are you I'm prepared? Rusty. Yeah, I'm rusty. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so we're actually, I would, if it's okay with you, if you don't have any questions, I would love to. I'm not going to formally introduce you. I would love to just chat yeah. about the show oh, and absolutely. your life. Okay, great. D- yeah. Did you have anything you want to ask before we get uh, started? I, no, I just want to make sure that my audio is okay. Um, yeah, does everything sound right? You actually sound great. How do I sound on your end? You sound great. What are you using these days to record? Uh, I am on my um, Focusrite amp, and then I'm just using one of our Audio-Technica headsets that we use for podcasting. I usually use a Heil mic when I do my um, solo stuff, but this is easier because it's like an integrated you know, headset and mic. So. Yeah, it sounds great. And are you using Skype when you record, or are you using one of those platforms oh, again? Uh, the, the new podcast has all been in person, everything I'm doing on Wildfit. Oh, Wild you know, I've listened to three episodes so far, and they were in person. I just wasn't sure. I thought... Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard being in Maine, of course, but it's like nobody comes through Maine. It's not like, because are you in Southern California? Yeah, I'm in LA, like right yeah, in the middle so of LA. so it's like, man, I mean, my friends who podcast there, it's I'm kind of jealous because everybody's always coming through LAX at some point. You can kind of talk to anybody and out here it's it's harder. I've got to travel a lot to New York and everything to get in persons, but. Yeah, do people people do come through, uh, you know, a lot of interesting, of course, like authors and uh, mm-hmm. people who speak a lot. But the people yeah. who I wanted to talk to, one of the problems oh, right. actually with this podcast was like, <laughs> sure. it's hard getting They're in touch in with LA. people living in yeah, Paleolithic yeah. communities in the Pyrenees. Right. And they don't <laughs> yeah, want to talk yeah. to me via Skype. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um Okay, so yes, I am in LA. And did you have any other questions? I forgot. What we no, were. no, I'm good to go. I just want to make sure the sound was all right. Yeah, yeah, you sound you sound fantastic. Um, so I was wondering if we could just start out, maybe because I we were just talking about your wedding, and I just wanted to tell you if I get married again. I mean, obviously to my husband, who I, if I could do it again, <laughs> if I could do my wedding again, um, I would want to do it just like yours. It was so beautiful. And it's in episode five of Wild oh, Fed. Oh, you saw that episode. I did. I hadn't talked to Jesse about which episodes she'd sent you. So um, great. Oh, I'm glad you saw that one. Is it okay that I saw that? Oh, absolutely. Everybody's going to see it. So yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think they will. It's First of all, it's so beautiful. Um, Thank you. Not just your wedding, but the whole show. The look great. of the production value is unbelievable. Um and I learned so much already just from that one episode. And so can you tell us a little bit about your wedding or is that too much of a spoiler? That's not a spoiler. Just I mean, you I think it's, tell us so much snippets. about your life now and, and how you how you live your life with your family. Yeah, well, I mean, the the only small parts are show up in the episode, of course. I didn't really want to make a the whole episode about my wedding, but um, and for context because the show is about hunting, fishing, foraging, and food, um, some of the context for the show was that every episode of the show, of course, we kind of have a big meal at some point. You know, sometimes we'll have multiple meals in the show, but but usually it revolves around one big meal that we're preparing for throughout the episode by gathering the ingredients. And it was so important to me that I got to feed the people at my wedding. And my wife, who is from Montreal, so she's a Canadian from Quebec, um, you know, and I live down in in kind of, I'm from Southern New Hampshire and moved to Southern Maine when I was a teenager. And this part of the country, we're really known for um, lobster. And people in Quebec, they 
come down here a lot for the summers, particularly to our beaches because they don't have ocean frontage um, in Quebec. So they'll come down to Agunquit, Maine or Wells, Maine and Mainers, we just sell them lobster rolls all day long. Yeah, I'm <laughs> really from Connecticut, so I know this okay, well. Yeah, we used to go to Agunquit right? all the time. Right. Okay, so so my wife's family used to come down to Agunquit and, you know, lobsters was the big thing to do when you came down here. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll go work on my friend lobster, my friend's lobster boat, the Intuition, and uh, I'll put in a couple days and, you know, as a third man on a boat, you make 10% of the catch. And so I was like, I'll just take all lobsters instead of taking any money um, because lobsters buying them at market price would have been really expensive. So I ended up getting a great deal on the lobsters. I got to make the episode and I got to feed everybody at my wedding lobsters. Now, I don't think you see as much of this in the episode, but uh, I fed them deer. I fed them um, pollock and haddock that I'd caught as well. So I got to provide the caterer to my wedding, who's my friend Will, all the ingredients. Um, and then friends of ours came down from Quebec to lead the wedding for us. And they are folks who take part in the moon dance and the sun dance every year with um, indigenous folks, First Nation folks from Canada and the States. So they go out to the Dakotas for the sun dance every year uh, and the men dance in that. And then they host the moon dance um, which is a Mesoamerican tradition up in Quebec every year. My wife's been a big part of that. So they came down and brought sort of infused that tradition into our wedding ceremony. And you know, it was just really beautiful. We had uh, probably about 40 people. It was pretty intimate. Um, really, really good food and, uh, you know, a big fire in the backyard. Uh, that's what we cooked the lobsters over. But I, for me, what we wanted was people on the earth with a fire, uh, you know, in the elements, we didn't want to have all the sort of pomp that weddings often have. Um, so I think, you know, from an outsider, it still looked like a wedding, um, but it had a real tribal kind of feel to it. So, uh, yeah, it was just really beautiful uh, to get to do that and um, to bring that ceremonial aspect. So we sort of honor the four directions and we um, kind of honor the ancestors and then, um you know, everybody kind of gathered around that fire and all everybody helped with the big lobster bake at the end of that. And we serve out all that food. I mean, it was just a blast. And we got a really great episode out of it, too. So that's episode five of the show. Yeah. Oh, and just watching everyone dig into those lobsters and the champagne. I was like, oh, this is just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> life doesn't get better than that. As that far as actually I'm characterizes the show a little bit, too. I'm glad you said that because Having done, so I did 178 episodes, I think, of Rewild Yourself and wow. kind of immersed myself in that world. For Well, how many episodes have you done now of Uncivilized? Oh, no, God, not, not that many. I think uh, this is 34. Okay, a little less frequency then. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm sure, though, that there's a lot of overlap in the journey. Like, for me, a big part of it was wondering to what, feeling that I am compelled to look to the past for information about how to move forward in the future. That's important to me. But the question is, is like, how much is of this can I bring into my modern life before it starts to hinder my ability to thrive? You know what I mean? Because it's like, if you think of an organism's job is to thrive in its environment, right? And to be like successful in its environment. And this modern environment, if I go too primitive, right? If I start to wear buckskins every day and I start to, um, you know, I only make fire with friction and I, you know, live in sort of a, you know, a, a hide shelter out in the woods, 
like I'll, my health will probably be really good and probably my mental health and focus would be better than a lot of us who are spent our days, you know, on computers and on, you know, with so much screen time, but my ability to actually be successful in the world would, I would be hindered by that. Right. So what the question is, is like, how much can I, how much balance do I need between what's modern and what's primitive to satisfy both aspects of what I need? Like I need this connection to my biology and to my humanity that I get from the primitive living side, but I also need to be able to move through the world. And it's important to me at this time of crisis in the world that I get to be somebody who's contributing to change and contributing to, um, you know, a, a clearer way forward. Like I want to be part of that. So WildFed is a fun project for me because it represents having done all of that work in rewilding and then going, okay, what from this do I want to bring forward? And the part that I got most excited about bringing forward was the food piece, the hunting, fishing, and foraging. That connection is enough for me. It's like that, what I needed out of that was a connection to food from the landscape that's sort of in a, in a tradition that's 3 million years old or, or older, you know, that I feel like really satisfied with that. But I, I also, you know, like you brought up like lobsters and champagne. It's like, I also like my modern life too. And I wouldn't want to give that up either. I want both. And so wild feds fun because I get to do that. I get to go out and harvest those animals and those plants and those fungi and those algae and bring them back as food. But, you know, I can cook them on a modern range and cheers with some champagne too. And I think that that is a, as a package, as a lifestyle, is a lot easier to bring to people than um, something that's really, really primitive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how you came to that idea, that it's okay to maybe combine both and to present something that's maybe more accessible. So when you first started out, did you, when you first came upon the world of rewilding, did you think at some point that you were going to live a much more primitive way of life? Like, did you experiment with that whole world? Well, I've been experimenting with that stuff for a long time, um, long before I had the show. Um, but once I started to talk to people in that world, you'd, I'd meet characters, I'm sure you've met characters now, who are, are much deeper down some of those rabbit holes. What I've noticed is it's very difficult to find anybody who's doing all of it, um, because it takes a village is the old is the saying, right? And that's really true, because when you look at how we live ancestrally, you know, you need something like 30 people, 40 people, 50 people to have an intact functional foraging group that could actually live on the landscape and make all its own, you know, communally make all the goods that it needs and produce all the clothing that it needs and do all the hunting and the foraging that they would need to do. I mean, to do all those things, you need a big group of people. So the idea of like the rugged individualist or the the like the homesteader sort of, in the 500 the, square the, foot cabin in the Ozarks. Yeah, like I've been, yeah, you know, or I interviewed. The home, that's it. The, or the homesteading family, let's say. The idea like that you and Ma and Pa and the kids and the dog are going to go do that. It's like without um, being heavily resourced from the outside, man, it's not very realistic. It, I know it was done in the past, but people were living under hardship. I'm most interested in when people were living primitively, but quite comfortably. But like some of the stuff that was going on, I think people like often imagine during the sort of push westward by colonists, you know, as they were living sort of the little house on the prairie type thing. Like that is very hard living. 
being out there isolated by yourself. So um, where I think we had the most function, where we were the most functional is when we were in foraging groups and those foraging groups were part of extended bigger family, familial groups and clans. And um, we had massive tracts of land on which to to procure all the things that we needed, right? So I never felt like it was realistic that I was going to go deep down that, but it's very romantic, right? Especially when you're frustrated in your modern life, like when you've had too many meetings, too many calls, too many deadlines, it, it's very attractive, you know, when it's tax time to like, I want, I want a teepee <laughs> and a fire pit and I'm going to forage everything and disappear. Um, the, I think more what I'm trying to say is that after exploring a lot of that stuff, like for instance, I have friends, I keep bringing up buckskins and hides. Like I have friends who make buckskin and I'm sure you do too. And, um, and they make it and they wear it. Like that's just not realistic for my lifestyle. It doesn't fit anywhere in my life. If I did that, I feel like it would actually reduce my, um, success in the world in a certain regard. Like there, there are times where I could pull it off, but I can't, you know what I mean? It's like not really realistic for me. That part's not that exciting to me. Um, you know, I love friction fire. I know I burn a fire every day in my house right now. It's wintertime here. Um, we have a fire burning every day. Um, I love friction fire and I like to practice that, but that's not a realistic thing for me like every single day. But what is realistic, because I cook every day, it's been it's been very easy for me to integrate hunting, fishing, and foraging because those are pastimes that I really personally enjoy. Now I'm saying that I want my friends to keep doing buckskins because like, I think that every aspect of the primitive lifestyle needs to be kept alive. I, and I say that um, because like we're keeping alive you know, like you could go to a Hershey's chocolate factory museum, right? A Coca-Cola museum. Like they're keeping that alive. If we're going to keep that alive, we should probably keep like the skills that kept human beings alive on the planet for 3 million years. That should probably be kept alive too, right? You know what I'm saying? I was wondering where you were going with the Hershey's chocolate analogy. Yeah, my point being like there's these these things that we keep, right? Like you could go to a Rubik's Cube museum, you know, like they can't let that die. (laughs) But like, you know, we're, we're at risk of losing some very fundamental human technologies that I think or it's really important that we preserve. So um, I like knowing that there are people who are doing all those different primitive skills, napping stone. Like I just, at at this age of my life with all the things that I'm doing, if I wanted to get good at napping stone, I would have to make that a very serious focus. It's just not for me. But what I can do is my my piece of it is is the wild food on the landscape. That gets me really excited. I'm jazzed up by it. Um, And what it allows me to do is feed people. That's the part that's most exciting to me. So if I was napping stone and I was making points, um, I would still have to feed the people around me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I still got to feed my family. Well, and that's what happens for a lot of those people. I mean, they become experts in napping stone. And I've talked to archaeologists and then they're like, you know, wolfing down a bowl of cereal when I'm talking to them on Skype about their work. Yeah. So that's, thank you for saying that. There's yeah. not that, there's, there's just not time in the day. To yeah, do everything. you can only. How many of these things can you do? Do you have you met any? Have you spent any time around any of the trackers? Anybody who's deep in the tracking scene? Oh, I have, and I actually, my daughters and I have taken classes with a couple of those trackers, which has been amazing. It's inc- that skill set is inc- incredible. I mean, and it might be very fundamental to where human language and communication how it even developed. 
But I know a lot of people who have gone deep down the tracking world and they don't hunt. And I go like, well, what are you, what are you tracking exactly? <laughs> like, you know, this would be such a useful skill if you got like, you know, meat at the end of it or something. But like, it seems odd to me now. I'm teasing because again, that's a, that's a skill set we need to keep alive. I think it's important that there are people who do it. And I'm sure that they would point to some of the utility. For instance, I know folks in the tracker school that, you know, I know that they're sometimes called upon for missing children or when there's escaped fugitives and things like that, that the lost persons, that can be a really beneficial skill for, you know, locating people. But, but ultimately, that's a hunting skill. Um, and interestingly too, I know a lot of hunters who successfully fill their freezers with meat every year and I don't know, can't track. So it, to me, it's like finding that right balance. For me, what was important is I wanted to reduce the amount of food that I have to buy from our industrialized food system. So that's a big piece of it. I, there, I need to eat food that has meaning. That is so important to me. This is like the missing nutrient for me. So I find that if I don't have, now that's not for every bite that I eat. You know, of course, we go to the farmer's market. Um, I, I occasionally find myself shudder to say it in Whole Foods, but um, <laughs> it's so hard for me in there. I know. Well, uh, especially since Amazon took it over. I don't know what it's like in Maine, but it's just it's it's the same. so it's depressing. The same. It's so depressing. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same. Anyway, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, of course, grateful for the things that I'm able to get there. But, but I, when I walk out of there, the food has no meaning to me. It has no story. So it might be like, hey, this is really nice asparagus, but I don't really know anything more about it than what was on the label. Um, whereas when I harvest my fiddleheads in the early spring, man, there's a story. I, not just the, we, we've been planning it for a week. It's not just the, the canoe trip that we took to get there and the togetherness and the weather and the, Hey, this is our first glimpse of the growing season of the year. So it sets the tone for the year. It's the forage itself. It's the other animals and plants that are associated with that ecology where that plant grows. I mean, the, all of that, when we come back and we eat it, it's so infused with meaning. And I know a purely scientific, you know, nutritionist could say like, Hey, well, that doesn't really matter because that's not vitamins, minerals, macronutrients, you know, phytochemistry or any of that. But it's like, whatever that is, I, I want to take full advantage of that because that level of meaning adds richness to my life that I can't get anywhere else. So it's so much better for me to sit down to a, a meal. Like if I'm eating venison, like we're going to eat tonight, you know, I know the deer, I know where the deer came from. I know what the deer was eating when it died. I, I know all of that is infused in there. I butchered that animal myself. There's so much meaning. And when I share that with people, I see how they light up from that too. And so that's the part that really drew me in. So um, what I'm doing now, wild fed, it's like the evolution of my personal journey through re rewilding. And I think other people would come through it and maybe they would hook into the movement piece, the tracking piece, the napping piece, the all these other aspects of it that we were talking about. But I just, I've always been enamored by food. It's how I came to rewilding in the first place. And then as I sort of stepped out of that, what I bring with it is the food piece as well. And you've got to see some of the episodes of the show now, so you kind of see how I'm tying it all together. I really want modern people to see that they can participate in this and they can remain modern people. This is not like a you have to do like, you know, any of the little house on the prairie stuff if you don't want to. Right. And in a lot of cases, you're talking about things that people did up until very recently. Like yeah, yeah. My sister-in-law's father, you know, they're old school Connecticut people. He, up, they still fish. And up until mm -hmm. very recently, like almost everyone in their family would would hunt in the winter. And uh, 
you know, grow food in their backyard. And this, these weren't like, these aren't esoteric things. Like this is something that most of us did up until a generation ago. I feel like it's a bit like, uh, just to echo what you've just said, it's, it's like if you try to explain to your kids about a time when there was an internet or their time when there wasn't a cell phone and it's almost like too, it hurts the brain almost to imagine it. It's like, well, how did anything get done? It's so integrated, you know? Uh, and you're like, no, no, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like when I had to go to the library and use the card catalog, it was really quite recently. Right. And so similarly, it's like, you know, here in Maine, we've never really had a break in the tradition of hunting. I didn't grow up in it. I mean, that's a piece I should really articulate here. I grew up, you know, in rural America, but but not raised rurally. Um, and I did not learn to hunt fish or especially to forage, um, as a kid. I didn't, that was going on around me certainly, but I grew up in a single parent home, um, without a father, without uncles, you know, without any of the kind of people that historically used to pass the hunting and fishing knowledge on. Certainly that's, you know, I'm, certainly there are women and, you know, there's aunts and moms who've passed that stuff on to people too. But, but traditionally I think it's, it's more predominantly been men that had that tradition up until recently. And then I come from a generation where a lot of us didn't have dads. And so that was not there. And now it's like a whole new landscape because now it's like, um, it's no longer patrilineal. That's for sure. That's changed tremendously. And people who are, weren't exposed to it as kids are learning as adults. And I'm just one voice of, of tens of thousands of people who are doing that, um, who've decided as adults to learn. And we have to go about it in a different way. Like I said before, it would be like you'd learn from your dad, you'd learn from your grandpa, you'd learn from your uncles, and it would get passed on like that. Well, that's all changing, and we're having to find new ways to learn it. Part of why I'm making the show is to create inroads for people who go like, hey, that's something I'd like to participate in, but I don't have anybody to show me that. So how do I do it? You know, I, I didn't grow up with any of that around me, but it was certainly going on. But numbers are way down too when you look at numbers of people participating in it. And it's, I think that one of the, the things that people don't realize is that all of the incredible conservation work that's done in the United States and Canada around wildlife, all the field biology that's taking place, all of the habitat um, conservation that's happening is is almost all essentially funded by hunting dollars. Right. Um, I and was just talking about that in one of my previous episodes. Okay, so yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure they converted here, but like, if that doesn't, if we don't find a way to carry that on, man, we stand to lose a lot of that. But do you uh, find yourself really having to defend hunting a lot? Because I, living in an urban environment, I think part of the disconnect is just the simple fact that we are moving to urban areas where people don't hunt anymore. And at least here, you know, when you talk about conservation and caring about the environment, it's always like, and I know you've been down this road, but it's always in connection with eating less meat. Being vegan, yeah. You know, and, and I, and obviously I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you feel like oh, this has been a thing that you've had to make the case for as, as wild fed is coming out and as you've launched this podcast and this show? It's so interesting you asked me that. Now, partially, I mean, one of the things is, let's say you and I are making the same exact, we're having the same conversation, but you're having it in LA and I'm having it in Maine. I think just the demographics are so different. I defend it a lot less. I don't have to defend it as much. But that said, I'm online and I'm talking to people everywhere. Um, and I don't find myself defending it that much. Now, one thing that we've kind of talked about at Wild Fed, especially in our podcast and stuff, this comes up is, 
is this hierarchy of animals that people have constructed. It's funny because you, I think as I say that, you're probably well aware that usually the people who are going to attack this also like to attack the idea of any kind of a hierarchy, right? So it's like they, they hate the idea of any hierarchical thinking, but in their own minds, they've got a hierarchy of animals based on, I guess, sentience or based on anthropomorphic qualities. So if I say that I killed a June bug and ate it, people will just be like, oh, gross. And if I was like, well, I killed a small fish and ate it, people would be like, ew. And then if you're like, well, I, you know, I killed a deer and ate it, people are like, Bambi. And then if you're like, I killed a bear and I ate it, people start to lose their minds, lose their minds. I mean, you know, so it depends on how, where that animal is on that hierarchy. Cause they have this, like, there's a way of seeing the world as um, charismatic megafauna and non-charismatic megafauna and the more furry and you know bright-eyed an animal is the more people uh you more you have to defend it uh that said i'm you know i was a vegan for a decade and i understand the psychology very very well um i was definitely one of those sort of like radical nutrition people and uh so i know where they're coming from and i understand the arguments that get people into that thinking and i think i'm i do think i'm particularly skillful at taking those arguments apart from based on my experiences and i can usually bring somebody around pretty quick to understanding where i'm coming from and i also want to say that as soon as you have the caveat i eat this people are really different about it so while, yes, I know what you're talking about needing to defend hunting, I feel like um, the fact that people know I'm doing it for food changes it for like 98% of people, maybe 99% of people instantly just cool off when they hear that. Like if they got at all heated up about that, it's like they, they don't mind because they know I'm going to eat it and they go like, well, like I have a lot of vegans write me lately and say, uh, I am a vegan. I will never, I love how they always talk like this. I will never kill an animal again in my life for food, but I respect what you're doing. Cause if you're going to do it, that's how you should do it. I get a lot of that now, yeah. which has kind of been a surprise. Uh, but I do occasionally deal with people who are so deep in it and so zealous about it, um, that they, they won't budge. And, and, and what I'll do, I'll just like let them hang out of my networks. But if they say anything aggressive or anything violent, I immediately block them and they're just blacklisted from being in any of my social media. And I found by doing that, I, I don't deal with much of it anymore. Yeah. I just get rid of those people right away. It's like, it's like, if you're going to come here preaching nonviolence violently, like you're not welcome here, you know? Right. Right. And we don't need to <laughs> delve into this anymore. But, uh, yeah. So let's, well, let's talk about then who you created the show for. And when you, when, when did you have that light bulb moment? That wild food was so important to you. It was so interesting having listened to so many of your episodes and to kind of trace the evolution. But was can you trace it to any one thing that happened? Well, I think just I was into wild food long before I ever made my podcast, but I was into it on the plant side. Um, So from when I was really little, growing up in my backyard, I somehow discovered several edible plants through just experimentation, and uh, that I was. I was not afraid to like put things in my mouth, try things, you know, uh, when they were plants. I'm not saying that about animals because um, I didn't, nobody exposed me to that. So growing up, I sort of had this idea that there was food on the landscape that people were ignoring, but it was just a little kind of itchy thing in the back of my mind. It wasn't anything really forefront. 
And then uh, when I got into nutrition as a teenager, um, I started to realize that there were these foods around. I was always just excited about it. It felt like this fun Easter egg hunt thing to find wild edibles, um, particularly because I was in a place where we had wild strawberries and blackberries and raspberries and feral apples and things like that. So I was somebody who would always, like if there was a fruit tree in my neighborhood, I would like find it, you know, and I would not harvest from it or whatever. Uh, but it wasn't until I met my foraging mentor, Arthur Haynes, uh, this is still before I started the podcast. He was teaching foraging classes in a much more, you know, he's a botanist and it was in a much more cohesive way. He's also a primitive skills teacher too. Um, and he brought, kind of brought me into foraging in a bigger way. And I really, really liked it, but I, it felt like it didn't integrate fully into my life yet. And in looking back, I can see why is because I was missing the animal piece. So um, later, I got really excited about medicinal mushrooms. That led me to foraging mushrooms. Now I'm, I'm foraging some plants, I'm foraging some mushrooms, but I'm still having to, you know, buy a lot of food. And once I, it's, this is what's so weird to me. I did my podcast for a while before I started. So I think I did that show three or four years. I, I didn't start hunting until like the latter portion of it. It never clicked for me. And this is, I think, back to some of the stuff we were just talking about. As a former vegan and a non-hunter, and who was interested in hunter-gatherers, I used to talk about hunter-gatherers every episode of my show. Somehow, I did not connect modern hunting with that. That's so strange to me. I don't know if that makes sense. It was like, to me, there was like Elmer Fudd hunting today. And then there was this idea of people who hunted in the past, and I didn't get that I could participate in modern hunting. And I don't know why. It seems like like some kind of cognitive dissonance. Once I went out on the landscape and I actually harvested animals, that was the moment. It was like, oh, I harvested a couple of turkeys. And it was like, wow, I now – and it, because I had harvested turkeys in the spring when our season opens up, that's also when we forage for leeks and fiddleheads here. And so I had a cup, like a two-week period where I was eating – wild game and wild plants together on my plate. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I keep doing this, I could eat, I could like actually really eat wild food in a serious way. So that's how it kind of clicked for me. And then I started to get, you know, much more devoted on the, the to fishing and hunting. Um, because with that, the plant calories start to really make sense. Because otherwise, all the plant foraging was only like this very minor subs, like supplement to my diet. But um, when I got my first bear, that man, that's when things really clicked because with a bear, you know, whose body is somewhat like a pig in the way that they store body fat, you have this ability to render off an incredible, I mean, the dreamiest oil. And I say this as somebody who's, I've been around a lot of, like I'm in the nutritional supplement industry and I've been in the health food industry a long time. So, you know, everything from coconut oil and cacao butter and shea butter. And, you know, I've been around all those like beautiful plant oils and then animal oils like emu, you know, and all kinds of lards and tallows. Bear fat is like, if you could wring out a cloud in heaven, like what would come out of it? It'd be like bear fat. It's just this creamy, slippery, olive oil-like fat that, you can both cook with and use raw. You can use it topically. You can treat wooden leather with it. You can fry in it. I mean, it's just amazing. So now I keep a tub of that, you know, next to my stove. And that becomes, once I had a cooking oil that was from wild game, it was like, oh, now I kind of have it all. So of course I have to supplement my diet with a lot of stuff. But but now um, between, you know, what everything I'm harvesting now, which would be, you know, lots of plants, 
um, and that would include green plants and fruits, as well as things like nuts. Then there's the mushrooms, then there's the seaweeds or the algaes, then there's the white meats, the red meats, you know, all of these, there's white fish, there's oily fish and dark fish. With that kind of mix and variety that I'm able to harvest now, it's like, wow, I just... I can, it's a significant amount of my food. It's, it gets so exciting to yeah, me. Yeah, I can hear how excited you are just listing everything that you're able to. Yeah, it's interesting you use the word harvest, actually. So tell me about that. Why is that intentional that you're using the word harvest instead of hunting? Um, yeah, I think partially because I have still the um, aesthetic of somebody who um, didn't, you know, who was a vegan. And I think that the language is really important. I mean, you look at like... Um, Thing, I don't really want to give specific examples, but you sort of look at like how our language changes over the years. Um, for instance, okay, here's an here's an example. Like, um, if you look at how you we use the term, I think right now it's okay to say developmentally delayed. You could say about a kid who had special needs, right? Right. I think you could still say that, but I think we're kind of on the edge right now where that's almost starting to sound. I don't know if you could hear it when I said it, but it kind of sounds a little bit like mm, we're going to change that soon. You can tell that'll get updated. But if you look at the language that was used to describe a kid with special needs 30 years ago, it's like stuff that today sounds way too jarring and shocking. Do you know what I'm, you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I do. Like our language evolves all the time. <laughs> Because of our personal sensitivities, particularly as we socialize more and more and become more connected, um, I think when it comes to taking of animals, um, part of me wants to just say things in a much more concise way, but I think that um, it, can, it can do more harm than good sometimes. So it depends on who I'm talking to a little bit as well, because there are people who I'm around who've been hunters their whole life that if I said said things in a certain way, they might be like, dude, why are you talking like that? <laughs> right, I'm going to harvest a boar. Right. Okay, but uh, no, but I do say that actually. Yeah. And, and I, I think actually, more and more we're hearing that too. Yeah. And I will say, I actually, I've, I've thought about that a lot because it was one of the things I noticed when I started listening to the Wild Fed podcast uh, before I watched the show. And I, without getting too wonky, um, Okay, I'm going to get a little wonky. It, yeah, it, implies, wonky. it implies that you are doing this selectively, that you're mm -hmm. not just taking out an entire population of wild uh, animals, that you're, you're yeah. choosing one, and it's intentional, right. and you're leaving more for that uh, environment, which is uh, something that you talk saying. a lot about, too. So, I, yeah. I mean, I find it very fitting for what you're doing. Yeah, and if I if I could expand on that a little bit too, yeah, please. Um, because uh, let me just assume that some there'll be some folks listening who don't really know how our modern hunting system works too, and that the like the way that it legally works in the United States. Now, first, I'll just say uh, hunting and fishing in the United States and Canada is very well managed, surprisingly well managed. I know that in the past there was hunts that were absolutely not just unsustainable, but led to the extirpation and even extinction of some animals. So. You have extirpations like the loss of the buffalo across most of its range. You know, bison here in North America, that's an extirpation. And then you have actual full-out extinction of animals like the passenger pigeon, who, you know, for folks listening, if you don't know about passenger pigeons, you owe it to yourself to, to, to look up what this animal was and how it lived and what it did. I mean, it's really remarkable. But, um, but that animal is now extinct. This all happened from market hunting, which was, you know, the hunting of animals to sell in the marketplace, which is now illegal in almost all instances. There's some rare exceptions to that, but, but primarily that's illegal now. And we have an incredibly well-managed system and it's scientific management. So biologists in the field doing field research, 
doing animal population studies, um, changed the regulations year to year, um, and also looking at how many people are participating in hunting. Uh, that helps to determine how many tags can be issued for specific animals. So it's very well managed. Uh, our, we don't have to worry today that if you go out and participate in hunting, you're going to lead, you know, you're going to be causing the extinction of an animal. Uh, the hunt would be shut down long before that would happen. Um, everybody's concerned about that, including the hunters, of course. Um, but bigger picture than that, the way that it works in the United States is that each state technically, legally, I don't mean this ethically, so please know that I'm not speaking this from my heart, I'm speaking it from my brain. This is how this works legally in the United States. The state of California owns all the game in California. Uh, if you had a black-tailed deer that crossed up into Oregon, it would no longer belong to California, it would belong to Oregon. Uh, so, you know, the states own the game that's within its boundaries. Now, the people of the state own that game in trust. So it's a kind of like a bank account. So if I know that there are 30,000, 35,000 black bears in Maine right now, and I own them equally with every other person who's a resident of the state of Maine, when I go out and, and I own land here where I live, but I don't own the animals on my land. They do have a system like that in Britain, but they do not have a system. We do not have a system like that here. So if a wild animal's on my land, I don't own it. I just own the access and the land itself. So I can tell you, you can't come on my land, but that animal doesn't belong to me. The moment that I, with a hunting license and a legal method of take, in other words, a weapon that is legal for this type of hunt, this is all regulated, of course, if I harvest one of those black bears, if I kill a black bear and I put my tag on that black bear, what I've done is made a withdrawal from the, the trust. So we own those animals in trust. All Mainers own all Maine black bears in trust. And that animal isn't mine until the second I tag it. When I tag it, I've made a withdrawal from the trust, and that's now my black bear. In other words, I've harvested it from our collective. So it is actually kind of accurate to think of it like that. It's not, and I think a lot of people who don't know about how hunting works today imagine this willy-nilly system where people are just out there whacking whatever they want and just you know running around shooting at stuff. It's definitely not like that. Hyper, hyper-regulated. I mean, just like every other aspect of our lives is. Uh, but we have the greatest game management system in North America that the world's ever seen, and it's why we've been able to restore wildlife all across you know, from the Pacific to the Atlantic, we've been able to start, you know, in cases of extirpations, we've brought a lot of animals back. Animals that were almost gone from our landscape have been restored. Uh, waters are being cleaned up. Forests are being regrown um, at a, a pretty astounding rate. Um, and as I mentioned before, that largely has to do with hunting dollars, but, um, and, and the investment of energy that people who are involved in the hunts uh, put out. But uh, I think harvest kind of, it makes sense. It's like we sort of, we don't raise those animals, but we create the habitat. That habitat encourages that wildlife and then we can go make our withdrawal. But withdrawal sounds a little weird, so I'll go with harvest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's stick with that. Um, let's talk about wild fed because I just, I would love my listeners to get a sense of what the show is really like. Can you give us like a quick rundown of of what the episodes are like and, and what went into the making of them? Yeah, I met a friend uh, who's now a very good friend, business partner, and my producer, Grant Giuliano. I met him a couple of years ago, and he said, you know, Daniel, I followed your stuff online for a while. Um, I think it would be really cool if you did some video media 
would you be interested in working together? And I was like, oh yeah, let's talk about it. And he was like, well, I think it'd be really cool for you to, to film some of your hunting and foraging stuff that you do. And I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm pretty new at it. Like, I don't think that that's really makes sense. Or I don't think I'm even really sufficiently in that lane to do that. And then we talked more about it and it started to seem like, well, wait a second, as somebody who's learning as an adult, maybe it is a really good story because a lot of people want to learn as adults. And the landscape of hunting TV and fishing TV, it's like, wow, it's not, I personally don't find much of it very entertaining. There's a couple of shows that exist that are good, but most of it's rude. It's really hard to watch. And uh, we thought, wow, let's try making something. And I thought we were going to make 10 minute little internet pieces. I thought we'd do like little vignettes for the web. Um, we started filming and really quickly it was obvious that we could make longer form shows. Um, so we started making 30 minute episodes. Most shows are 22 minutes, right? Because they got eight minutes carved out for commercial breaks, but where did, we didn't make it for a network. So we made 30 minute episodes. So when you watch them, they feel kind of long. Well, let me just like, ask you, sorry to interrupt you. I, I don't think they feel long by the way. I think there's so, so much. Sorry. To they, they feel rich compared. They, yes. They, they're not as terse as a lot of. No, that's for, true. And yeah. and you don't feel the same sense of like, I got to grab the watcher immediately or they're going to change the channel. <laughs> yeah. Something really right. exciting is coming up. Um, yeah. So did you, did you think about pitching this? To a network, or yeah, well, well, what? It, okay, so a little more backstory is I had pitched a couple of other shows, um, and I was in LA for a while, um, you know, pitching two shows in particular, two sizzle reels, and I did get to speak to everyone, not everyone, but every network. I mean, there wasn't a network that uh, that I knew of that we didn't get to go talk to, and uh, to be honest, I I felt like one part of me felt like, hey, I'm I'm pitching a record. I'm pitching like a CD or a, you know, a DVD or something, you know, at a time where the industry is changing and going all the way, you know, MP3, MP4 or something, if that makes sense. Like as an analogy, it's like, I'm here at these networks and these networks feel like they're kind of withering away because the internet's taking over media and there's an energy about TV right now that is like a little bit desperate to cling to what it had. So, you know, a part of me was like aware that they were making shows with less and less regard for the quality of the shows. And when I started to pitch the show with uh, a friend of mine who he, his production company does what they call premium TV. Well, they were having a tough time in general because the quality of what they wanted to make was above what most of the networks were wanting to make at that point. So we started going into these meetings and meeting after meeting, they would say like, listen, we make really bad TV like that. That's what we do. And this is good, but it's a little too good. We have to dumb it down if we're going to make this. And I was like, just blown away. Because these are networks that I grew up with as being very serious shows. You know, Nat Geo, Discovery, History. When I was a kid, I took those networks seriously. Yeah, I did too. But you see what they make now, and you're like, wow, this is all just this, like, whatever that stuff they call reality TV. You know, it's, it's kind of gone downhill a bit. Um, so secondly was like when I saw what they pay. It was like, no way, I'm not doing that. I have a business, man. I'm not doing that. Um, so I kind of was like, that's not the direction for me. Uh, we did send it around to some different places, but, you know, just, it's. I think this is the time in history where this stuff is coming out on the internet because people are a, a little uncertain right now about the direction and the future of television. Um, yeah, I don't know that world at all. 
some of I'm just the, kidding. My, some my husband's the, a screenwriter. <laughs> oh, he is? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if what I'm saying resonates at all, but I feel it like does, we're at a time does. of a lot of change. And um, I would love to see this end up. There's some you know, some of the, the online platforms that are there now, although those are expanding rapidly too. So what in the end, what I decided to do is I'm just going to put it out myself, and I'm going to build its reputation and its following but based on its own merits. And if we get picked up by a platform that respects the integrity of the show, then that's really exciting. But if not, I'd, I'm kind of curious to see if it matters in the future. Um, we'll see because um, I, I'm interested to see what I can do with it on its own too, if that makes sense. Yeah, I am. You know, and you have such a devoted audience who really wants to learn. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that some people in urban areas might be watching this just, you know, more of like a I guess, for lack of a better term, like a food porn perspective, just because it's so compelling to just to watch you, you know, cook and, and go fishing and hunting. But I think most of your audience like really wants to learn. And yeah, even you if do that thinking, in, 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 in your work. Things. What's that? Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to jump in. No, on no, you. no, go ahead. Um, uh, I think that, you know, people, some people want to learn even if it's not what they're going to do. So it's just exciting to learn something. Like I've been one of those people my whole life where, like one of the greatest ecstasies of being alive is is like a, an aha moment. To me, it's like I don't know. It's it's that's exhilarating when I real, especially like when you realize something that reframes how you see the world. Like that's just the most exciting thing. So for, I've always been questing after learning. Um, for me, what was really important in the making of Wildfed is that the show is entertaining, that it's artistic but that it's educational too. And I think that um, TV has gone down this road of making everything really entertaining. Uh, and then with the new platforms, they're doing a lot better of making things entertaining and artistic. But the educational component in the US is not here like it is. In, like more, it's more present in the UK, I notice, in their TV. Um, I really think that's important because those are the people I want to communicate with, learners. I don't want to just entertain people. I'm like, I'll just do something else. You know, I want it to be entertaining, but I want people to be learning. So um, that's been a big part of why we've done it ourselves too. And also, just to kind of go back to, um, you know, what we were just talking about, what the show is like. So it's thirty minutes long, and every episode is um, kind of following an arc where we we go and we gather something. So that could be a plant, but it could also you know, be a mushroom. So that'd be a non-plant, like a fun, a fungus, or it could be an algae. Like in the case of um, that episode, we were just talking about episode five, where we harvest some seaweeds. And that blew but, my but, mind, by the way, I did, I didn't know that, that seaweed was not a, a plant. plant. I know that's one of those aha moments that I had this year. Um, I'm putting out an episode of the podcast tomorrow um, with a phycologist. So somebody whose career is a PhD who studies seaweeds. And I was just listening back through the episode. It is like science fiction when you hear about the life cycle of these organisms um it's quite humbling to harvest seaweeds in a way when you start to learn about them but um yeah so we always we always gather something or sometimes multiple things and then we always go after a protein so it could be hunting but it could be fishing it could be collecting like anthropologists would say so if you and i went down to the coast and we gathered you know shellfish that's considered collecting I sometimes will call it micro game hunting, but it's really, it's collecting. So, uh, 
right? Because <laughs> we have like big game and small game. I'm like, oh, micro game. Um, but we'll hunt something, you know, with one of those methods. And then we take that food back and we either bring it to a chef. Sometimes it'll be in a restaurant setting. Sometimes we bring it home and we do like a home cook thing or I'll bring it to a home cook. But we always bring it somewhere and produce a meal that the people who helped us forage it or learn along the way or the people who helped us hunt it or fish it, everybody comes together and shares in that meal. So there's like this like community eating component to it as well. And usually the show kind of concludes at the meal. So that's the arc of the episodes. But then there is the sequence across the seasons. That's the part I get a little more excited about. So season one of the show begins... Um, with turkey hunting and spring green foraging, you know, before leaves have come out on the trees. And in the final episode, episode eight, we're out on the ice in the snow, um, fishing through, you know, a hole in the ice. And we're out harvesting chagas, you know, on the birch trees, you know, after they've defoliated in the winter. So, so there's a seasonal arc too. And I'm now uh, just to the end of filming season two. So we're already a season ahead, uh, which is really exciting as well. And we're starting to plan out season three now. Oh, Wow. Okay, so how can people watch season one? So season one, you go to wild-fed.com. And when you get there, uh, just like click on the main banner. That'll bring you to uh, the the all the trailers for all of the episodes and for the pre-sales. So um, you can buy the show itself right now, or you can participate. We have a nine-week program. So the program is you still get the whole show. You get all eight episodes of the show, but then there's also a um, bunch of associated stuff, extras, there's Q&As, there's a member group and all that kind of stuff too. So we're selling both products, the season one or the season one experience as we're calling it. Um, all that stuff's for sale right there on the website. <clears throat> and of course, you know, our podcast is out there too, wherever you get those. And so what about for people like me who live in Los Angeles? Because I, <laughs> I wish I could hop on a plane and just follow yeah. you for, you know, a couple months. But <laughs> no, no. like, what, uh, what can I do? Because I think I definitely taking foraging classes here. And there are there's an abundance of fruit trees in my neighborhood that no one wants to pick. Um, but other than that, you know, it's a little frustrating. So do you have any advice for those of us in the yeah. in the industrialized yeah. world? Yeah, well, like you live in. Yeah. So. The, f- the first thing I tell people, I recently put out a podcast called Finding Your Niche, and the idea was your niche like an animal has a niche, you know, like what, what would you be your wild food niche in Southern California? Because the fir- and probably the first thing you need to do is go get a hunter safety course under your belt. Because once you have that, like I got my hunter safety course probably a full five years before I ever went hunting. Oh, wow. Um, the thing about it is it's usually it's a one day thing or a two day thing. Um, a lot of times now it's, it's half of it's online and you go for a little class. It's not very, you know, in Germany, I recently learned this thing costs like thousands of dollars and it goes on for months, like a very different system, you know, but here it's really, really simple. Once you have a hunter safety course, you can buy a hunting license in any state or province. So now North America is open to you. So if any opportunities come up, the thing is, if I said to you right now, I was like, hey, Jen, you know what? We've got a moose hunt plan next week. You should come up. And you'd be like, well, I can't because I'm going to go to hunter safety course. And you know what I mean? You'd have to find one. There's probably not one in time, blah, blah, blah. You should just go do that because if you do that, then you can buy a hunting license whenever you need to. So that's the first piece. After that, Uh, And with fishing, just so people know, with a fishing license, you don't need to do any kind of prerequisite. You can just go buy a fishing license in any state or province. That's no problem. Um, 
Next, what I would do is get your state's hunting regulations. You have access to a tremendous amount of land, and you have are the owner of a huge amount of public land. That's really important for American citizens to consider. I, one thing I've I, – I got into this sort of heated debate a couple of years back, which was the last thing I really want to go back into, but I'll just briefly touch on it, is this idea of is foraging a privilege? Because people were saying to me, well, it's a privilege you have. Um, and I sort of wanted to point out like, hey, we're all public landowners here of huge amounts of land. Now, some of us have easier access to it, for sure. I get all those like difficult components, but, but you own the national parks in this country. You own the state parks in your state. You own the national forests, the wilderness areas, and all those wilderness areas and those national forests, those are open to hunting. So if you're like, well, where would I even go? It's like, well, just so you know, you got a lot of land that you can access and a lot of wild game you can access on it. You also equally own all the wild game in California. So I know it's like, well, I'm in LA, so we'll go a layer deeper here too. So first of all, you're on the coast, which means you have access to a lot of fishing. So one thing I would consider is finding out what people are harvesting out there. Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. I would get the regulations on hunting and fishing for the state of California. And I would just go through the species section and see what people are legally and lawfully hunting and fishing for. That's the first place. Because a lot of people don't even know what animals live where they live. Have you heard this thing, Jen, where it's like um, they, they are, there was a study done looking at children who are, who are urban, who are asked to name animals. And when they're asked to name animals, most urban kids list animals that aren't even from their continent. Could you picture that? Like if you grabbed a kid out of school and you said, tell me about, you know, name some animals, how they might say like, well, lions, tigers, elephants, zebras, giraffes. Yeah. And you're like, tell me about some animals that live in your state, though. It's like, oh, well, a lot of people don't know. That Well, that's like, isn't that in the Michael Moore documentary where he goes and asks kids to name vegetables? And they can't even like... <laughs> Spaghetti. You think, yeah, ketchup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So sim it's similar to that. Like there are species that I fish for that I didn't know were here. And I was a kind of an ecologically aware person, I thought. But I, I you know, it's been a, a revelatory for me. So... Find out what people are actually going after so you know what you have access to in your state. That'd be one thing to do. And then figure out kind of, is there any of those that are really speaking to you? And then what would it look like? When is the season? What equipment would you need? What would you need to learn to go after it? Because you might decide, wow, like we have feral hogs in the state of California. I would like to do a hog hunt. Or maybe it's like you probably wouldn't have to go that far outside of where you live to get to a javelina. Like it might not be outside your back door, but it might be an hour drive. Wait, what's a javelina? Uh, javelina is like, a, it's a peccary, but it looks like a small pig. Oh. Uh, they're definitely in Arizona. And I imagine as you get west of you, uh, sorry, east of you, I imagine that they must be in that part of the state too. Oh, but wow. I, anyway, it's a, it's a small pig looking creature in the peccary family. Um, anyway, there are, uh, there are things that you could be doing not that far from LA. It might surprise you. Also, I would imagine that you could take headboats out of LA. You'd have to look this up, but where I live in Maine, one of the things that I do is, um, you know, I have a small boat, a uh, 20 foot boat, but you know, you only take a 20 foot boat so far off the coast, right? So 
this is what we would call an inshore boat. I, I participate in inshore fisheries with it. But there are fish that I can go after if I'm on a bigger boat that can go further out to sea. But that's really expensive to maintain a boat. And it's expensive to charter a boat. But what I do is I go out on what's called a head boat. So I pay about 150 bucks for the day. And we go to a... Uh, takes about two hours. I think we're going about 35 miles offshore. And we get into water of about three to 400 feet and we fish for haddock and pollock. Pollock is the fish that um, most people who've ever eaten like a fish sandwich or fish sticks, that's usually pollock. Haddock is very closely related to pollock um, and very close, closely related to cod. These are just outstanding daily eater. Like if you were going to eat, you know, one of fillets of like white flaky fish a couple times a week, th these are the fish. Anyway, I go out, I spend about 150 bucks. You know, there'll be up to 20 people on the boat. They provide all the equipment. They provide all the bait. They take you out for the day. They get you on the fish. They show you how to fish for them. And every fish you catch, they fillet for you. And at the end of the day, you go home with bags of fillets. Does that make sense? Yeah. So easy to participate in something like that. And that way you don't have to, you don't have that huge barrier of entry to like needing to have hundreds of dollars of equipment or thousands of dollars of boat or, you know, the fuel alone to go offshore be hundreds of dollars, but you're not paying, you're just paying your one ticket. And so that's like a way that someone like you can get involved right away without having to do any big investments. And probably you don't have to go very far to do it. So there's all these things that you could become, you know, you could, you could start to participate in and keep in mind that it's not just land animals. Like you might find like, wow, I'm interested. I like eating duck, duck breast, duck fat. Like I bet you don't have to go too far to get involved in some waterfowling. Um, you know, there's a lot of small game animals that people aren't always thinking about, like just probably heading right out into the desert and getting into jackrabbits and things like that. So you, it'd be interesting for you to take a look at the regulations and see what people are actually after, you know, because you might find that there are uh, quite, there's quite a suite of species. And the one thing that gets me really excited, I really like thinking about this. I mentioned before like that there are quite a few different things that I go after and I, I'm able to I like to have a nice variety of things to be able to offer people. And you know, when I cook for my wife, it's like each day it's kinda like, Hey babe, what should I thaw for tonight? Because I like to I don't want to eat the same thing every day, right? So so it's like if I eat red meat one night, I probably want to eat fish or a white meat the next night. And we like to revolve it. But I sometimes think about like, well, what could I do? Like what if I wanted to to do something that no, there was really no pressure, like nobody else is really doing a lot of, and therefore I'm not out competing with a lot of people. Like if you want to hunt for deer or moose here in Maine, you're competing with a lot of people. So a lot of people do that. But like recently, I started trapping uh, for beaver with some folks. So there's another alternative. If you're not interested in like using guns or archery equipment, but you'd like to harvest animals, trapping is this really interesting. I think actually in California, you guys have recently banned trapping. You're the first state. Oh, really? First state to ban trapping. Completely. Why? Uh, I don't, well, you know why, but uh, you know, it's funny because I imagine it's probably one of the like an animal rights. People wear the most fur too. Yeah. Yeah. I think for animal rights reasons. But, but anyway, the point being like, I went out trapping for beaver and beaver is just one of the most incredible meats. I just couldn't believe how good it is. And it would easily replace red meat in someone's diet. What does it taste so, like? Like red meat. <laughs> you know? uh, like the legs I braised and they were like, um, like an incredible pot roast and the, the loins, the back straps, I cooked like steak rare and they were like venison. So out of this beaver comes not only the beautiful pelt, but uh, this exquisite meat. 
And what my point is, there are people all over the country hearing this who definitely could go out and trap beaver without ever having to go out and compete with other hunters, so to speak, right? Or get drawn into any of that. There are these like alternative ways that you can do things. You know, there are fish species that nobody's really targeting. Very few. You know, there are bird species that, you know, not so many people are targeting that you can get out and get access to. So it's not just the stuff people think of like elk, deer, you know, you don't have to do those things in order to do some of this. And any recommendations for actually learning how to hunt and trap? Well, yeah, yeah. So what I would say first is like, um, do your hunter safety right? Get, get your regulations and go to a hunting sa- hunter safety class. Now these classes are really cheap. They are not money makers for the States. They are like $10 or something. They got to cover their costs, but, but you're not paying any kind of exorbitant amount of money to do this. When you go to hunter safety, you're going to meet a whole bunch of people who are in there. In that room are going to be some kids who are getting their first adult hunter's license and they need to do this. There'll be adults in there who've done this their whole life, but for whatever reason, they have to be there. There'll be people who like yourself who are new to this and that'll probably more and more, that's the bulk of people and they're just wanting to get started. So first of all, you meet people who are doing what you're doing. Then those instructors are going to be very interested in connecting you with people who can help you get started. So that's another aspect. Hunting is one of these things where, um, more than any adult pursuit I've ever done, there it is passed on from person to person. In other words, almost anything I've been interested in, I've been able to go find books or workshops, classes, uh, you know, audio books, whatever it is, videos that like teach you how to do this. Hunting is a is the people who have been hunting all along have not necessarily been the people producing literature. <laughs> There's like a divide there, you know? Right. So you don't find as much of that. So you really got to meet people and it's very, very helpful to have a mentor. So these kind of a class, this kind of a class will help you connect with mentors. Now, other things you can do, um, call your local fishing game for your state and tell them you're a new hunter and you're wanting to get involved more and more. The states are putting on these kind of mentorship programs. Um, there are conservation groups like one that I belong to called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which is a very cool, very young and very hip um, conservation group um, who, you know, their state chapters are always putting on mentoring groups and classes and workshops. So that's like another way. I have a friend in California now. She's up in the Bay Area, but she joined a women's sportsman's group. Um, and this is a really interesting phenomenon too, because Right now, one of the things we hear a lot, and you can really see this reflected in hunting and fishing media, is that women are the fastest dem- growing demographic culturally in hunting. And really? so, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that there are some, um, I think they're probably not the most retained. In other words, women are the fastest growing segment, but I don't know that uh, women stay in it as long as men typically do. But certainly right now, when it comes to who's new and getting involved, yeah, I mean, the industries have moved tremendously towards women's equipment, women's clothing. Like if you pick up a hunting magazine, it's very common now to see, you know, full page ads that are, are women or, or women focused, um, articles written by women. Yeah, it's a, it's, it is the fastest growing demographic. So, so right now, there's a lot of groups by women for women. And that I think is really useful because um, there, I, understandably a lot of women would like to learn from another woman because in i'm saying particularly in the context of hunting um just because of all of the stuff that you know 
has been associated with hunting for a long time, the sort of machismo of it or whatever, which is falling away in the, in the, the new kind of marketplace, but is still residual there. So there are a lot of like women sportsmen groups that have come up. In fact, I've been kind of envious of some of these because my friend has been able to go participate in several different hunts that could be kind of difficult to access, but she was able to through this group. So that's something to look at. Um, so, and I would definitely never overlook just talking to people. Um, whenever you're going somewhere, like bringing it up, talking about it, because it's amazing. Most of the people that I have been mentored by, uh, in different disciplines of hunting. So, um, what I mean by that is the people who taught me to turkey hunt is like one group. The people who taught me to bear hunts, another group, the people who taught me to moose hunts, another group of people that I know, um, because people tend to specialize a bit, but a lot of those people I just met in a pub or met you know, I met my bear hunting mentor at a gas station, just started talking to a guy with a bunch of stickers on his truck about bear hunting. And before I knew it, he was taking me. So that kind of thing's really useful. If you know anybody who's got a family member or a friend, what you will find is that people who hunt and fish are so excited to share that with new people, very excited. And they love to take people out. And one of the most common things you will see is, or hear is somebody say, I get more satisfaction watching you get your first, whatever it is, than doing it myself at this point. So uh, in other words, it's more exciting to me to watch Jen get her first mallard duck than to, for me to shoot a duck myself. That's just more exciting for people. They love watching other people get involved. So um, yeah, don't, don't hesitate to talk to people and know that when you participate in these things, the dollars you spend on it, whether it's the hunting license you buy or the duck stamp that you buy, you know, at the post office, you have to buy a federal duck stamp if you're going to participate in that. The, the, the money there goes directly to conservation. Um, similarly, when you buy hunting equipment, that would be guns, ammunition, archery equipment, or when you buy fishing gear, the money, there's a 11% tax on that. That goes to conservation. So as you start participating in these things, you are just starting to pay for more habitat to be preserved, um, for more animals to be on the landscape. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's very reciprocal. Yeah. It's amazing what can happen when you talk to people and put down your iPhone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, but actually on the iPhone, you know, on that point, it's probably one of the easiest ways now to connect with people too is is social media in that if you start looking around even in your own networks or you start to uh, yeah look for people who are hunting and fishing in your area. So you, one way might be to look at um, influencers who are doing it and just say, hey, I'm in this area. Do you know anybody? Or another way might be to go to forums or groups that are from your area and start like just saying, putting yourself out there. Hey, I'm new at this. I'm really wanting to get started with whatever it is, catching smelt or I want to, you know, hunt coyotes or whatever your thing is that you want to start doing. Um, you know, you're going to find people are going to plug you into that scene. Yeah. Oh, Daniel, I'm so grateful for this specific information. I know our listeners are too. It's amazing how many times I ask someone and not to disparage other interviewers. I mean, we've had amazing interviews on the show, but I usually end with the question, like, how can people get more into your world? And it's usually something along the lines of don't give up. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. pick something you're interested in. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you for giving oh, me some course. really concrete ideas and things I've never thought about before. Um, and that's why I admire your work so much and, and what you're doing with WildFed, because you're really spelling it out for people. And and I'm just so grateful that we have this amazing resource. So thanks for, thanks for saying that. We know our, our tagline is food is all around you. And it literally is. So that's kind of the 
the that's the quest we're calling people into and say, hey, even though you're in downtown LA, there's food all around you. One, you have eyes to see it. And once somebody shows you where it is, and uh, it can be pretty exciting to, to figure out where all that food's hiding. Yeah, I feel that way about plants now since taking so many foraging classes. My my husband always pokes fun of me, po- pokes fun at me when we go hiking <laughs> because I'm always like, look, you can eat that. Look, you can eat that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's easier to get into hunting and fishing than foraging. That's way more obscure. There's a much more there's much more in place. So know if, if you decide to step into it at all. It's like there's already, you know, foraging is so obscure and so arcane and you got to really find people who do it. But hunting and fishing, every state is already regulating it. They already have laws. They already invest tons of money into it. It's already there for you. So you just have to step into it. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited to venture into that world. So before we leave, what what would you like to tell us about WildFed that I haven't asked you about? And what would you like to just say? I know it's a big a big thing to leave you with. But since this is the last episode of Uncivilized, anything else you want to leave us with? Well, I first I want to say thanks for having me on. It's your last episode. I think it's really cool to come full circle like that, you know, because I remember when you started the show. So it's it's an honor. Uh, so thank you for hosting me uh, after I got the opportunity to host you um, and all the work that you've done here. So that's really cool. And uh, with WildFed, I just want people to check it out, to be honest. Come over and check out our podcast. Um, this one's ending. So hey, why not? Um, the the WildFed podcast is sort of like ecological education it's like it's like to become a citizen ecologist i think that we are in this time right now where every day is doom and gloom headlines about the environment i mean to the point that we see reputable elected people saying things like well, there's only 11 years left of our planet it's like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. i'm out there every day right if you're not out there it's very, you become very susceptible to headlines. You become very susceptible to doom and gloom. And um, I think it's important for people to go prove it for themselves. Go out there and see what's there. You might find you're very encouraged when you see the health of ecosystem. I mean, for sure, there's all kinds of terrible, you know, loss happening. Yes. But when I'm out there, I leave that renewed and reinvigorated, seeing ecosystems, seeing animals in their habitat, and getting to eat from those ecosystems makes me feel very confident at a time where people feel so um, afraid. And so with WildFed on the podcast side, what we're doing is educating people and kind of trying to raise up citizen ecologists, people who know about the environment around them and who are ecologically literate. And with the show, what we're really trying to do is encourage people to, it's not just about, hey, check out what I'm doing. It's like, hey, I hope this inspires you to do your version of it in your place. And what I'm really excited about is a renaissance of, around wild food, not just because of the food piece. That piece gets me lit up and I'm excited about it. But it's about people starting to care about actual places, not just the generic word environment. Like, oh, I care about the environment. I care about people caring about specific environments. And the only way I see that really happens is people become invested in landscapes. And they do that when they start to eat from them. They start to care about places again. And I think that's how we save our environment is starting to care about it at a place-by-place level. So I'm working on it here in Maine. You know, you're working on it there in LA. If everybody gets working on this, I think we can accomplish some really amazing things and then we get to have the byproduct is like the best food you could never buy. Thank you, Daniel. I'm so grateful for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. (music) 